Okay, let me tell you what we're going to do tonight. Uh, if you remember, uh, you probably don't, but if you have your notes from the first session where I kind of gave an outline of these four weeks, I said that on week three we're going to do a little bit of personal eschatology, thinking about what happens when you die and what the afterlife is life for a Christian and glorification and all of that. Um, I have decided to, over the course of this past week, call an audible because of some of the questions that we've had and just a sense that I have over the last two weeks that I think it would be helpful for us to spend some time thinking broadly in a kind of overview, giving you some tools about how to read the book of Revelation, the last book, the famous book of the Bible letter, the Revelation. So I'm going to hopefully give us some tools to do that um, tonight. Now, I, as I was putting these notes together today, I, like I do just about every time before I get in front of you, I go through a kind of a moment of fear and panic, and I'm like, oh, man, this is a terrible idea. And so I may regret this decision midway through this talk, um, and you will probably sense if I regret this decision midway, but I hope this is helpful to you. Uh, before we began tonight, Mark McGraw came up to me, and he's been pestering me for a long time here for about preaching through Revelation. I'm actually, as a result of our time together, thinking about doing that sooner maybe rather than later. Um, I don't know, so thank you for that. But Mark just, we were talking, and he says, you know, this has been helpful, but you know, I kind of have this ringing question in my mind, like where, was we looked at the first week, we looked at the overview of millennial views. And then last week, we, I made an argument for the millennial view that I think makes the most sense to me, looking at the, the two-age sort of grid or lens by which we can look at Scripture, this age and the age to come. Uh, and, and Mark made the comment like, well, you know, where should I fall? And I, here's the answer to that, is that I think, I think as I've mentioned several times, I, I, I'm not so much burdened that you would adopt the view that I think makes the most sense, but that you would just wrestle with these things and that you, by virtue of thinking more deeply about eschatology than maybe you have in the past, or if you've thought a lot about it in the past in one particular lane, maybe broadening your horizons a little bit, maybe causing you to grip your particular view a little less dogmatically and seeing that every boat, as I mentioned, has some holes in it, nothing's airtight, just causing us not so much to adopt a particular view, but to just love Jesus more, to be people that Second Timothy chapter 4 would be descriptive of, that we would be people that love his appearing. So um, I really appreciated that question by Mark, where should I fall? And I think you know, I don't want you to necessarily adopt my perspective just because I have it, because I've got questions about my perspective. I've got, I've got you know, every, every boat has its holes, is what I'm saying, in this particular area of doctrine, not in the other areas of doctrine that we hammer here, like the atonement, uh, soteriology, the doctrine of Christ. Um, I want to make that clear when I, I, when I speak a kind of, I'm sort of accenting the humility that I think faithful Christians should have in this particular area. I don't think that we should have that sort of uh, timidity of being dogmatic in the vast majority of other areas of doctrine. And I think I've made that, uh, I think I've made that point hopefully helpfully before. So here's what I want to do. Two things. I want us to think about, I want to give you some tools. I want to 
walk you through four different schools or lenses or interpretive grids for thinking about how to read Revelation. And then I want us to, and this is where I may sort of, when we're midway through this, I may just start really regretting this. I want to walk through kind of a, an outline very quickly of Revelation and make an argument for a way of looking at Revelation that I think is most helpful to me, that makes sense to me. And you may disagree with it, and we can ask questions. What I do want to say is that um, when we have questions and answers, I, 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 I just don't feel prepared to really get in the weeds. Well, what does verse 6 of chapter 8 mean? What do you think this means? Well, uh, Revelation is a difficult book to do that with unless you really spend some time in that passage. And so um, I, I don't necessarily want to do that. Maybe that's for another time, but let's just get into it. So there's four schools of interpretation for reading Revelation, and this is taken straight from a very uh, helpful scholar. His name is G.K. Beale, uh, and he wrote a book uh, on a commentary on Revelation, a larger one and then a shorter one, and this is the, from his shorter one. So as the bullet points, some of them are just lifted verbatim or that I just kind of adapted from a couple chapters that he did. And then these illustrations that I have, I just copied and pasted them from the ESV Study Bible in their introductory notes to Revelation. And so if you have an ESV Study Bible, this comes straight from that. I think it's really, really helpful. But I think the vast majority of study Bibles out there on the market today that are, you know, from good translations probably have something similar to this and are probably really good as well. So here's what I want to do. I want to um, look at these four different schools of interpretation. And so we're going to look first at uh, the, the uh, historicism. Okay, but before I do that, before we kind of look at the four, I just want you to focus on, you have it in front of you, but I'm just going to draw um, here because I, you know, I like to draw. Uh, Jay James told me I was Mike Fratello. If you remember him, he was that coach, the czar, the telestrator on NBA games. Well, I feel also like Vince Lombardi on that chalkboard here. You know, you got a center and two guard, and you got a, you got a seal here and a seal here, and you want to run to daylight. Um, so I feel a little bit like a football coach. But here's what I want you to focus on now. I want you just to see. Um, oh man, I, 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 that won't that won't come up. Oh well, okay. Anyway, um, I want you to focus on this right here. I just want you to see the general structure. Of Revelation. Don't pay so much attention to what's going on below. I'll explain that in a second, specifically about the his, historical view or the historicism. I want you to see the general overarching structure of Revelation. The first three chapters are just an opening, and then especially chapters two and three are letters to seven churches and seven cities in Christendom at, Christendom at that time. And they are simultaneous rebukes and encouragements to these churches that were real churches that are meant to be kind of churches that I think represent God's people and churches through the ages. But that's what, that's what chapters 1 and 3 are, okay? And then what we've been sort of spending a lot of time in is uh, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, uh, really 1 through 10, about this, this millennium, and then this, the kind of the final end, the final victory uh, the new heavens and the new earth is at the very end. But the really the hard, the kind of confusing part of Revelation is right here in the middle, chapters 4 through 19. And that is full of, it kind of it's, it, think of it in this way, it's series of sevens. So there's seven seals or scrolls, seven trumpets, seven bowls, 
Um, and then in the middle, there is uh, this kind of section here. Um, so there's, there's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And then there's a middle kind of starting in chapter, I think like 11 or 12, um, are these, these witnesses, uh, this woman and this dragon and beasts. And so that's kind of, you think about these sevens, okay? And that's where like, what do these things mean? These are, you know, what, what's going on there? Okay, so that's a general sort of overview of Revelation. What, what, what does the his, historical lens view, uh, how, how to read Revelation. Well, I'll just kind of sort of not read exactly verbatim, but you've got the characteristics there on your sheet. This view suggests that these seals and trumpets and bowls paint a picture of successive ages. So it's kind of, if you're looking at kind of like, you know, the beginning of the early church all the way through now, it's sort of looking at it more linearly, the patristics like the early church fathers, the medieval church, the Reformation, the modern church. And they see all of these obviously symbolic pictures. And let me say that. I'm going to get back to this. On, nobody reads Revelation literally, exactly literally. Everybody realizes that there's, there's sim, symbolism going on to one degree or another. But this view, and this is... It has some overlap with like amillennialism and postmillennialism views uh, a, a succession of each of these symbols, seals, trumpets, all these judgments, um, as 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 having a application throughout history. Okay, and so it sees symbolism of Revelation as referring to a series of specific historical events. And one real weakness of this is it's always uh, generally kind of the Western or European church, such as the collapse of the Roman Empire, the corruption of the, of the Catholic papacy, maybe the Reformation and various events since, things like even the French Revolution or, or whatever. So it's kind of seeing it sort of a historical, successive, um, uh, uh, all those symbols mean that, like the, that symbol, that judgment means, you know, it was like the Reformation. This one is, uh, you know, the French Revolution or whatever, something along those lines. The problem is that each historicist interprets the, the each historicist interpreter views the book differently, so as to make it fit the rea realities of his or her own age. So, I mean, it kind of changes over time because you know ultimately Jesus keeps not coming back through the centuries. So the danger of this view is it tries to 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 really look kind of tries to tie the symbols of revelation to a direct historical event in the history of the world without any real justification from the book itself. Um, and, and, you know, you might kind of think of, I'm going to make a point here about another particular view that it might be guilty of what we call newspaper eisegesis or looking at the newspaper, the current events and saying, oh, this, you know, Gorbachev has a birthmark, so he's the Antichrist. Or, you know, Saddam Hussein. I mean, that was a big thing when I was a kid. For the, I mean, I was, man, you guys remember that? I, I mean, you know me. I'm scared of sharks in the Soviet Union. And Gorbachev had a birthmark. And so is he the Antichrist? You know, well, it turns out no. <laughs> uh, and, or so, Saddam Hussein. And so th that's kind of, we're going to get to that. But, but this is more like looking at the headlines of historical events and trying to see a direct one-to-one -one -one parallel. Um, a real weakness of this view is it appears to have no relevance for Christians outside the Western church, nor 
would it have had much relevance for those to whom it was originally written? And remember, when you script, when you're, this is a rule of interpreting the Bible that you first need to look at its context to its original audience. So these churches that, 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 um, that John was writing to, what would the application have been to them if it was talking about the Roman Empire or you know, Charlemagne or the French Revolution or whatever? So what is sort of, the, sort of then similar to that is futurism. It's looking linearly. It's looking chronologically. But futurism would be generally consistent. And there's kind of two adaptations of futurism. It would be uh, the, just the historic premillennial adaptation of it and then the more dispensational view of it. And it would look, if you notice here, there's, what, what the difference between these two is it is bunching up these, um, these, these seals, these seven series of sevens, these judgments, seals, scrolls, trumpets, bowls. It is not looking at them as something that has gone on successively through the age of the church, but something in the future still to be. That's where the word futurism comes from. So this particular view, and this would be historic premillennialism, and again, this is a very valid view. Uh, lots of faithful Christians hold this view. Uh, Wayne Grudem, I think Danny Derringer mentioned Wayne Grudem. If you guys have systematic theology, it's an excellent, excellent um, uh, textbook. Uh, I don't agree with everything in it, and I don't say that. I, I don't like saying it because Wayne Grudem has probably forgot more about the Bible than I even know, so I, it's sort of humbling for me to say that I don't agree with Wayne Grudem. But there are things in there that I just like, ah, well, I don't think so, Wayne. But my point is, is that here's a wonderful theologian that is a historic premillennial. John Piper, you guys know the influence that John Piper has had on my life. He is a historic premillennial. And this view would see that all of these things going on in the meat of Revelation, all these symbolic, cataclysmic judgments, seven seals, seven bulls, uh, seven trumpets, are speaking to a future... Um, and they have a future application of a kind of time of intense tribulation. Now, the difference between historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism, remember primarily, one of the great differences is, is that historic premillennialists, like Wayne Grudem and John Piper and many others, do not believe that the church is going to be raptured out of um, the tribulation. Okay, so that's a big distinction between these two expressions of premillennialism. So they see these as a future... These, these, the, the meat of Revelation is something that will come over the, in the near future or faraway future as we approach the second coming of Jesus. So does that make sense? So then let's just kind of flip the page there and you can see some bullet points that I have. Typically, um, it sees these events as still future to 21st century readers. Thus, in a distant future from the standpoint of John and the churches in Asia that he was writing to. Interpreters holding this view are often often, and not, not always, that's why I put often in parentheses, are constantly changing their interpretation of historical events to make what is happening currently fit into the pattern. And again, that's, that's what I was talking about. Um, this is just a minor uh, friendly critique of this view, is it does tend to um, look at, it's kind of a newspaper exegesis. We used to have a, a dear brother that was a member of this church. I think he was a godly man. He loved the Lord, but I think he was really guilty of newspaper exegesis. And any time there was like a blood moon, or, you know, oh my gosh, I read where there was a red heifer born in Israel. And he would, just, he would just run around just reading the newspaper, trying to find current events to make them find some application in Revelation 4 through 19. And that, that, quite frankly, can get kind of exhausting. And I don't think that's what's going on in here. 
Difficulties include the fact that the book would have, it would have had less relevance for, for Christians of most ages than for those believers living later in the purported future fulfillment of Revelation vision. So again, it's like, it's sort of, it's in some, it challenges the principle of the, of the, of, of just general application or hermeneutic that the, the scripture was written to people in time has, obviously has uh, consequences and application for all Christians, but it's unlikely that it has no relevance uh, for the immediate uh, audience. Um, and so that's kind of the, the you can see there, uh, that's historic pre-mill. And then um, just a, a tweak, the next one over, future, uh, futurism, another application of that is dispensational, a little bit different. It's, it's seeing all of these things happen. Believers are going to get raptured. And so I think, and I, I, I may be wrong on this, if I am, forgive me, but I think dispensational premillennialists, which again, that's the newest end times view. It's uniquely American. I think it's probably the one that has the most challenges and weaknesses. And I say that as a friendly critique. It would see pretty much all of these things happening um, during this seven-year tribulation that they view, um, which again, they're the only end times view that believes in a, a, a seven-year sort of specific tribulation, unlike historic premillennialists, unlike amillennialists, and unlike postmillennialists. So I will say, and I, I think this is probably, um, again, probably the, uh, the weakest, I say that humbly, but I think it's probably the most popular in America today because it's been popularized by books like Left Behind by Tim LaHaye, and um, Hal Lindsey, late great planet Earth, or great whatever that was, um, which I, 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 I just, I think there's problems with those books. But um, again, well-meaning brothers that love the Lord. Okay, so that's, that's that futuristic view. So that's just kind of, I want you to see the difference, the kind of the difference between um, hist- historism is this linear progression, application throughout the centuries, whereas futurism Sees it's linear. It sees Revelation four through nineteen as chronological expressions of some symbolic uh, judgments, but it sees it as happening in the future. So obviously that makes sense just by the way it's named. Then partial preterism, and this word preterism may be unfamiliar to you, but it means just things, uh, the thing that is past. And this is generally consistent with postmillennialism and has certainly some overlap with amillennialism as well. So what does this mean? What is partial preterism? So think about preterism. So if you're thinking about, you know, think about just the, the differences. So hist- historism sees a kind of a, a general application all throughout history, like Revelation is talking generally about all through history. Futurism is talking about pretty much everything in the future, Whereas preterism is taking most of it and saying most of it, that's why it's called partial preterism, is that most of what happened in Revelation 4 through 19 already happened in the first century. Okay? And I want to make a distinction here that's partial preterism. And this is generally consistent with post mill and some all mill. So again, one through three, everybody agrees those are letters to the churches. But they would see that chapters 4 through 11. The, the, four, the seven seals, the trumpets, specifically um, were fulfilled in Jerusalem's fall in A.D. 70, okay? And, of course, that is a historical event. 
We talked about that. A lot of that seems to happen when Jesus is talking in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse. So they would see chapters 4 through 11 as a kind of spelling out of Matthew chapter 24. And then they would see, so now why it's called partial is because they don't believe that everything that's going on in Revelation happened already, but that some of it happened in Rome, um, the fall of Rome in the 4th century, and then they believe obviously in this Jesus is coming back um, at the end of the millennium. And remember what distinguishes postmillennialism is this uh, sense that the world is going to get increasingly better and better and better, and Jesus is going to return to a Christianized, Christianized nations. Not that everybody's a Christian, but a Christianized nations where culture has been transformed and that the gospel will advance through the church. Now that's partial preterism. So you kind of see the, just even think chronologically. Historism thinks about it through the ages. Futurism thinks about primarily these symbols being fulfilled in the future during this time of great tribulation. Preterism thinks kind of half and half, but most of it happened, really the bad stuff was really fulfilled in Jerusalem's fall in A.D. 70. What are some characteristics here, just to make sure we um, cover these points, sees the fulfillment of most, that's important, most of Revelation's vision, visions already occurred in the early years of the church. They see these events, either the destruction of Jerusalem or the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, or both, would soon take place only from the standpoint of John, and that, so they look literally at John, you know, so they take very seriously that these things, these visions in Romans 4 through 19 were, were maybe experienced by some of the people that John actually wrote to. Now, here's a distinction that I want to make. Full preterism, meaning everything that happened in Revelation <laughs> has already happened, which is a major distinction from partial preterism. I want to say clearly, partial preterists, I think, are faithful Christians many of whom are wonderful people, even in this room. It's a legitimate, valid view, interpretive grid. Full preterism insists that every prophecy and promise in the New Testament was fulfilled by, by the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and it is not a legitimate evangelical option because it denies the future bodily return of Jesus, denies the physical resurrection of believers at the end of the history, and denies the physical renewal, recreation of the new heavens and the new earth, and there's just lots of problems with it. Um, I, I've never met a full preterist, but maybe there are some out there, but it has been a historical view throughout the church. And I don't want you thinking that um, anybody that would call themselves post-millennial, um, the average run-of-the-mill, just good post-millennial, uh, is, is a full preterist. Um, they're, they're not. They would be more in the partial preterist camp, as would some amill people. Then the fourth is a redemptive historical uh, idealism. Idealism. And uh, this would be most consistent with amillennialism. So again, uh, this is what I would hold to. Uh, again, it's not without its, its issues. But it would not view... So if you think, think of the others as being uh, having more chronological expressions, okay? So again, the historical view views it as successively through the ages... Think, think, think primarily Revelation 4 through 19. Think about these series of sevens, the bowls, the seals. Uh, the, 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 these are judgments that are being poured out. They're symbolic of things. The historicist view views these as indicative of actual events from the early church all the way through. 
The futurist views it as something that's going to be in the future. The preterist looks primarily, a lot of it happened, partial preterist, a lot of it happened in AD 70, some of it in Rome, some of it in the future. The idealist, the redemptive historical idealist, is going to say that these things, let me just read this, sees the entire book as a symbolic presentation of the battle between good and evil. And don't be put off by that word symbolic, because I would argue that all of us believe that on some level Revelation is symbolic. Okay? So I think, don't, be, don't think, that's not a liberal word. That's like, oh, they don't take the Bible seriously. No, it's just viewing the entire book as not, not necessarily wanting you to think, what does this mean? What is it? Did this actually happen in AD 70? Did this actually happen in the uh, fall of Rome? Did this happen in the uh, Protestant Reformation? Did this happen, you know, in the French Revolution? It's no, it's, it's wanting to give you pictures that speak about the repeating battle between good and evil through the centuries. The seals, bulls, and trumpets speak over and over again to the events of human history in every age and give believers of all ages an exhortation to remain faithful in the face of suffering, hence redemptive historical. So kind of no matter where you are in the, in the history of the church, revelation applies to you. Would say that preterists and historicists are to some extent correct in understanding the various parts of John's vision find a measure of fulfillment. So it's not saying this to say that it's primarily symbolic is not to say that there isn't a measure of fulfillment in actual historical events. Yes, that's true. However, their meaning is not linked exclusively to, exclusively to those particular events. It may just have an actual representation of it. Uh, for Revelation finds fulfillment in countless events throughout the church age. So it's wanting to be less specific. It's wanting to kind of make you think less about how did this happen exactly and even though things happen that very much seem to model what goes on in Revelation through human history, it's actually wanting you to not, it's, it's not saying, oh, well, we can just chalk that off the list now because it's kind of repeating. It's, 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 and we're going to talk about this word re recapitulation. It's these repetitions to just hammer home to the church through the ages that uh, God is in control and there's a battle between good and evil and God triumphs in the end. In fact, he triumphs now through the reigning Christ. The forces and conflicts symbolized in Revelation vision cycles manifest themselves in events that were to occur soon from the perspective of the first century churches as preterists maintain, but they also find expression in the churches. This is important. They also find expression in the churches ongoing and the church, whether it's church in 400 AD or the church in 2023 AD, they find expression in the church's ongoing struggle of persevering faith in the present and foretell, foretell a still future escalation of persecution and divine wrath leading to the return of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. So in a sense, you could say that the redemptive historical idealism finds points of agreement with all three of the previous views, but just doesn't want to, it wants to guard us from specific, overly specific chronological application. Does that make sense? I think, I think that would be a fair statement. Um, okay, so 
Let me pause there and just see if there are any, just a couple questions. I don't want to get, because I want to do this outline of Revelation where I want to, I want to um, explain to you from what I would consider a redemptive, historical, idealistic perspective, explain to you sort of how this pattern of, of re- these recurring series of sevens, bowls, seals, um, uh, wh- why that is, and what's, what's the point of that, and this idea of re- recapitulation. But specifically to what I've just spoken about, does anybody have any just quick questions? Anybody have any quick questions? Yes, Jeremy, go to the mic, hop up. Um, time is of the essence. Yeah, and lift the microphone and speak into it. All right, there we go. Thanks, Jeremy. So I wasn't here for the previous weeks, but did you go over when John uh, approximately wrote Revelation? Mm. Because that fits into the That's a great point. idea yep. of everything happening before it was supposedly written. Fantastic point, Jeremy. Um, I meant to mention that, and I didn't. And uh, I, I think, and this is debated, uh, there are different um, understandings about the dating of John's letter. And so I think m- Christians that would have a more amillennial or redemptive idealistic view or futuristic um, would look at it being kind of closer to like the 80-90, which would then rule out a preteristic interpretation because that all the things that it's talking about already happened. So, so how could it? How could it be? So, yes, the dating of the letter of Revelation is a major issue, and that's going to factor into. That's a great point, Jeremy. Um, okay, going once, going twice. Questions pertaining to this. Okay, let's look at. This is where I might regret. Okay, here we go. Um, an outline of revelation and an expl- explanation of rep- recapitulation. Okay. And I've, I'm, I'm lifting this straight from Beale, G.K. Beale. And when you just use your initials, that just kind of makes, I mean, you're just smart. If you just go by, <laughs> I think his name is Greg, but we're just calling him Dr. J.K. Okay, this is his outline of revelation. Okay. Um, and you have it there. So let me pull it up. Okay. Uh, what, here's what I, I want to draw this sort of graphic for you. So think of it this way. Think of, think of, you know, this is the cross and this is the return of Christ. Okay. And, and, and here, the interpretation of all these other views, whether it is preterism, historicism or futurism, to one degree or another, whether they put them really early on or all through the ages or all in the future, see see the events of Revelation as being kind of primarily chronological and linear. So what's going on in chapter 19 is happening after chronologically what's going on in chapter 4, for example, right? Whereas the, the idea of recapitulation or this view of, 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 of these series of sevens, think of it less linearly and think of it more as like, like 
Think of it more like just intensifying pictures, okay? So this may be, you know, what's going on in like verses 6 through 7. In the first, in the, in the, in, in let's say, for example, the, um, you know, in the, the, the seals. And then what's going on in the trumpets. And then, you know, what's going on with the bowls. And then you've got this, you know, you, it kind of breaks away from the series of sevens. Actually, the bowls are later, but it, it, it um, you know, you got this picture of, 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 of the, uh, the dragon and the woman. And then you've got the bowls. And these are meant to be not so much things that they're just sort of symbolic pictures that apply symbolically to God's people all the time. Now there's going to be, because God's so complex and beautiful and wonderful, there's going to be things that are going on in, in maybe the, 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 the trumpets that are meant to be symbolic and have application, but really just have a direct kind of earthly expression to sort of prove God's point. But even if that's the case, even if, let's say, we can say from a, from a, from a symbolic, historical, uh, idealistic perspective, let's just concede, yes, we think this was pictured really clearly in the fall of Rome. But that doesn't mean that that's primarily what it means. It's got a, it's got a broader, it's giving us a picture. And then he goes on to these other seals, or this other, this other section, and it's the dragon and the woman, and it's another picture. It's like, it's, it's, it's John having another vision within this greater vision. He's, ah, this is, this is a picture of God's fight against evil, and, and he wins. And then, he, and then there's the bowls of judgment. And within each of these, we see patterns of judgment and salvation. So within, you know, within the, within the seals or the scrolls, within the trumpets, within the dragon and the woman, within the bowls, embedded in each of them are these interior cycles of judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation. And so I think that gives us a clue that there is a kind of rhythm going on that we are not necessarily, I think, could be wrong, to view Revelation so much linearly or chronologically, but to see it as repeating visions that, yes, are going to have some chronological application maybe, but the greater point is just increasingly intense visions of God's victory over evil for the purpose of giving God's people endurance through the ages, whether you're a Christian in 8500 or 2023. So let me kind of just give you a couple examples of this, okay, where I think we see this. Okay, look, go to your outline there, that page two. So let's just kind of, for the sake of argument, let's just see how we all agree on the prologue. We all agree that he's writing to actual churches in chapters two through three, churches in the imperfect world. Chapters four through five, pretty straightforward. It's this picture, this vision of God and Christ glorified through Christ's resurrection. Okay, that's happened. Obviously, all of us would believe that, except for uh, all of us believe that's happened. Um, uh, and then we get into the seals, this first series of seven, okay? And I want you to see this pattern, okay? 
So the judgment, so in Revelation chapter 6, I think you'd be really helped if you actually had a copy of God's Word open and you see this, because we're not going to put it on the screen. So if you don't have a Bible, use one of the ones in front of you. So we see this kind of first vision, of these, this first series of seven, these seven seals. And on the seventh seal, at the end of this explanation of these seven seals, we see in verses 12 through 17 of Revelation 6, and again, I, you know, there's so much more we can say about this, but I just wanted to give you this broad picture. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. So this is Revelation 6, 12 through 17. It was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the moon the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Okay, here's the point I want you to make. That's a picture of judgment, but I don't think that's a picture of temporary judgment. Now, there may have been an earthquake in, you know, 700, I don't know when Pampelona was or whatever, that we can say that happened and it seems like, you know, but, but that to me in Revelation 6 is this, this breaking of the sixth seal is a picture of the final judgment, okay? It's a, it's a picture, it's just a, the seventh seal is broken, and then there's this final judgment, and then salvation comes in, in Revelation chapter 7. There's this picture of the 144,000, which is not a literal number. I think it's symbolic of God's people. And then in Revelation 7, 9, we see this wonderful picture of the great multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation. It's a picture of salvation in, in Revelation 7 through, through 19. But then, okay, so think about this. Six is judgment. Seven is salvation being very overly simpl simpl uh, sim simplified. But it's not like a minor judgment. That then there's going to be a future greater judgment. I think what's going on in chapter 6 is, a, is an expression of the judgment, it's kind of the first, and then he's going to do it again and again throughout the book, because in chapter 8, go to Revelation chapter 8, you see verse 2, then he goes back to the tribulation. So then the Lamb opened the seventh seal. There was silence. Then I saw uh, seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood. And it goes back into, it re, sort of recapitulates. So chapter 8 is more tribulation after what seemed to be a real clear picture of final judgment in chapter 6. Okay? So that, that's, so it's, I think what's going on in 8 is it's circling back again to the judgment that we saw in 6. It's just another picture. And then we see uh, it progress and we see judgment come. If you go to, to, to Revelation uh, chapter 11, uh, verse 15 through 19, you kind of see the, 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 um, the end of the tribulation that started in 8. And you see judgment again, and then you see salvation again. And, and it's like it's, it's repeated. 
And let me read to you uh, the, uh, so, so, so all that to say that there's just a kind of another cycle, okay? Then look at, um, go to chapters 12 and 13. So you had seven seals and then seven trumpets. And now there's a difference. There's chapters 12 through 15 are not about these sevens, but it's, it's, it's seven visions or signs, uh, not about trumpets or seals, but now about this conflict between the woman and the dragon. And what I want you to see here is that in, verse, in chapters 12, 13, and 14, we see another like recapitulation, or think of if that word is unfamiliar to you, a repeating of the cycle that you saw in chapter 6 and 8. And at the end of 11, you see a repeating of the cycle, and you see then um, judgment and salvation. So go to Revelation, Revelation 14 through 20. So you see this picture of the harvest on the earth. I'll start reading in verse 14 of Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Friends, this sounds like the final, this sounds like the final judgment, doesn't it? Then another came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest out of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, for 1600 stadia. So the point I'm wanting to make to you there is that the judgment that we see at the end of 14, I think is a recapitulation of the judgment that we see in, in Revelation 6. And then in 15, chapter 15, we see salvation from that judgment. Chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse 2. And I saw what appeared to see a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So I think that's a recapitulation of the salvation that's going on in Revelation chapter 7, and oh, I accidentally erased. It's a recapitulation of what's going on in Revelation chapter 11. And by the way, this harvest, that picture that we just about the, the angels that are coming reaping the harvest in Revelation chapter 14, isn't that just a, a zoom in of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13? Remember when we looked at Matthew 13? where Jesus was talking about the end of the age in Matthew 13, and he says that there's going to be a harvest where we're going to separate the wheat from the tares. And so what's going on in uh, the judgment of the harvesters, this angel that's coming, I think is just a, another way of explaining what's happening in Matthew, uh, chap Matthew chapter 13 and definitely what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 13 is the end of the age. 
So do you see this? I want you to see this pattern. These are all just retellings that may have specific applications through the centuries, but don't get bogged down in that. They're retellings of the same story that there's gonna, it's going to be hard. The devil is going to have some measure, he's, but God's going to triumph. The gospel is going to advance. And this is where we can parse out the differences between amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism, as far as the differences of success or whatever. But the point is, is that the cycle is the same. And I want you to see that bigger picture, I think, that's going on in Revelation. One final one, and then I'll shut up. Judgment in chapter 16 through 17. We see it again. I just want you to see this last final cycle. So now we got now we're in the bowls, okay? The bowls of God's wrath. 16. You see, first you had seals, then trumpets. Now we're talking about bowls in chapter 16. And in chapter 16, uh, we see a great earthquake, okay? In 12 through 17, a great earthquake. Um, and here's what's interesting, is if you read, if you read the, about the earthquake in Chapter 16, verse 21, chapter 16, verses 17 through 21, this great earthquake, it reads almost identical to the earthquake. Let me get fancy here. Watch, watch out, watch out. Hold, brace yourselves, boys and girls. It gets another color. Look, I just want you to see it. The earthquake of chapter 16 is almost identical to the earthquake of chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. So I think what's going on there is a, it's just a retelling in a different way, this time with bowls, previously with seals, other times with trumpets, other times with this, these visions, these seven visions of the woman. It's retelling the same story. Yes, it might have a, a kind of earthly application through the history of time. I'm not saying, don't hear me say, that there's not literal application or that revelation is merely just up in the sky and that we can't say, well, man, this is everything in the world is a picture of God in some way. And so whether it is a great earthquake or a war throughout history or it's you stubbing your toe before you do something stupid... God is always, on grand and minute levels, getting his people's attention. And I think that's what Revelation is intended to do. And then I think, I think what's going on here, again, we see judgment in, let me go back to blue, uh, judgment and then salvation again in 19. And then I think chapter 20, the millennium, is just a kind of summary of it all. The summary of all of this. And then, chapter 21 through 22, we do see judgment and salvation again, but it's this final picture of the new heavens and the new earth. I'm not saying this is airtight. I'm just saying I think this is a helpful way to read Revelation, because what, what I don't want you to do, what I don't want you to do is read Revelation... And then run to and fro thinking, well, what does this mean? What is this? Yes, we, we do want to find expression. 
but you can kind of lose the forest from the tree if you're trying to identify every single tree. I don't think that's the primary purpose of Revelation. It's wanting to show you the forest of the victory of God over and over and over and over again over evil and the victory of Christ and his people through the ages. I think that's what's primarily going on in Revelation. So then I think what that does is it arms you to read Revelation in a way that you don't feel like water is caving in over and you can't understand, but you've got your head above the water. Sometimes you've got to dip down in and look at all the crazy creatures under the, under, the, under the water, but most of the time you can come back up and say, aha, I know where I am, I know where I am. This is just another recapitulation, another telling of the same story. And yes, it might have application, but it certainly ultimately has application for me now in that God is in control and his people win through Christ. And I think that's what's going on in Revelation. And I hope that arms you to read it in a, a way that kind of gives you, you know, some more clarity. Okay. Uh, so let me read this from G.K. Beale, and then I'll shut up. Recapitulation consists of a series of parallel visions in which God expresses the same truths in different ways. Okay, let me just read this quote from, from Beale. I think it's helpful. One of the great tragedies in the church in our day is how Revelation has been so narrowly I think that's helpful. Narrowly and incorrectly interpreted with an obsessive focus on the future in time. Certainly it has application there. I'm not saying it doesn't. With the result that we have missed the fact that it contains many profound truths and encouragement concerning Christian life and discipleship. The prophetic visions of Revelation can easily disguise the point that it was written as a letter to, to the churches and a letter with a past, which is pastoral in nature. The goal of Revelation is to bring encouragement to believers of all ages that God is working out his purposes even in the midst of tragedy, suffering, and apparent satanic, satanic domination because that's not the case. Jesus is winning and wins in the end. I'm done. Questions? Yeah, Jeremy. All right, so I, I would say that's a success. Um, I don't think you can talk about any of this without yeah. Pandora's box being open, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> I, I appreciate you, about um, to open it? you explaining this because yeah. uh, I don't know that I've ever really heard anybody explain the whole recapitulation. Let me interrupt you. Yeah. If you Google recapitulation tonight, um, there's something called the re recapitulation theory of a, the atonement and that's not what I'm talking about. Okay. Good deal. That's an English word that has multiple applications. Don't, don't, that's, a, that's, it's not heretical, but I don't think it's a correct view of the atonement. This is just a literary device. Does that make sense? Okay, go ahead. Gotcha. Yeah. So is it safe to, so I think before I was thinking probably more along the lines of like John Piper, whereas like yep. Revelation is past, present, but lots of future. And yep. they would typically think as those successive chapters of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls yep. as being kind of chronological, which kind of has, now that you're thinking about it, I was thinking like uh, in Revelation, I think it's 10-7, mm -hmm. you're still in the uh, trumpets or mm -hmm. uh, you're still, I guess, in the, mm -hmm. in the middle of the trumpets. Mm -hmm. And 10.7 says, but in the days of the trumpet call of the seventh angel, which will be the seventh trumpet, mm -hmm. which hasn't happened yet, 
the mystery of God would be fulfilled, meaning done, right? And then when you go read about the seventh trumpet, it says that when the seventh trumpet sounds, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and makes it seem like this idea of it's kind of all finished and done. But then you have yeah. all these events that happen afterwards. And it's like, okay, well, if God's, if God's mystery is now fulfilled after the seventh trumpet and God's and the world has become God's kingdom and everything's kind of chronological as I guess I've thought in the past, then 12, 13, 14, and 15 kind of become problematic because it's like, well, if the seventh seal yeah. brings his kingdom. So I appreciate, I'm not saying yeah. I'm yeah. fully, you know, I'm still thinking about yeah. this, yeah. but yeah. the me, idea me too. of me too. Yeah. Yeah. it's saying yep. the same thing, yep. just different ways because different folks understand yeah. things differently. Yeah. Amen, Jeremy. Thank you for that. And, and what I also want to do is I don't want to create this impression, like if we had three scholars and one was, was pre-mill, and one was aw-mill, and the other was post-mill, we would all be really encouraged by how much agreement there is. So think of it this way. The aw-mill and the pre-mill guy are swimming along. The aw-mill and, and post-mill, too, are swimming along in a sea with the premillennial friend. And the premillennial friend might just want to, he might want to keep his head under the water a little bit and say, well, what's that fish? What, whoa, what's going on there? And the aw-mill guy is... is He's kind of saying to his, his primo friend, wait, 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 look up. Let's just see where we're going. We're going to the shore. We're going, we're going to the shore. Um, and, and the pre guy guy's like, yeah, we're going to the shore, but like get, let, let, every now and again, look under here. And, and this is really encouraging because we get to see, you know, so there's kind of, we, we balance each other out. And I don't think that there's really as much disagreement for people that hold on to them lightly. When people get into trouble is when they get really dogmatic about their view whether it's more literal or more symbolic, I think both of them have ditches. If everything is literal, then you become dogmatic. If everything's symbolic, then you're floating in the clouds and you never touch down. There's a kind of walking hand in hand that I think is helpful. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally yeah. makes sense. Yeah, what, what, good, good point, Jeremy. Any other questions? Comments? Can't see under the hat there. Who is that? It, <clears throat> Justin Brown. Oh, hey, Justin, what's up? Man? Hey. <laughs> yeah. So um, as we were going over tonight and we yeah. were talking about the uh, chronological aspect of Revelations mm -hmm. and trying to look at it that way, yeah. um, it reminded me of trying to go back through the book of John mm -hmm. and how even that gospel is not chronologically comparative to the other gospels. Yes. So looking at John yes. as an author of a book if he has already, we can compare against accepted Gospels, having a chronological issue can then also be applied to trying yes. to apply chronologically to Revelations. And then also the, yeah. the aspect of um, trying to read the newspaper headlines to identify specific yes. things. Like, yes. Yes. I mean, if we just look in the last hundred years, I mean, you had World War II to yep. Korea to Vietnam yep. to... Yep everything yep. in the 90s and everything now yep. versus yep. the famines and HIV. Yep. And then, yep. Yep. so we've had all of that stuff going on. So yes. how, do, how do you balance all of that? Well, I think that it's, I, I well, I mean, I want to, two things. First, I want to say really insightful point there that you're linking John, the same person. I think Taylor, Taylor, didn't you make that same point last week? You basically said the same thing is that what we see this going on with, this John's doing the same thing in his gospel, not chronological, but sort of these symbols 
that he does in Revelation. So you guys have both sniffed that out, and that's really, really wise. But to your point about what we've seen in the last 20%, I think all of us can agree. Maybe the post-millennialists would push against this maybe more. I don't know. Maybe not. That I do think we see an increasing intensity to these things. So if you say to me, if what you're saying is, is what we've seen in the last 20th century, lots of these things, I would say, yeah. I think we can all agree with that. I, I, so I think amillennialism, premillennialism, and postmillennialism can account and have room for and a, um, a sense that there is an increasing intensity to tribulation or persecution. I think maybe your postmillennialists would say, no, things are going to... But even then, post, there's going to be lots of variants. There's things that are going to go up and down. But I do think you're onto something, and I think that... Um, I think that's true. I think there will be an increase. And what I argued for last week is that things, in one sense, are always getting better in the church. There's more Christians. There's more gospel going out than ever before. And things are always getting worse. I think it's Augustine's, the city of God and the city of man. I mean, this cat wrote that in, what, 300-something, Taylor? When did Augustine? I mean, mean, Augustine, (laughs) I mean, he wrote, he wrote, he saw future. He wrote this historic book called The City of God. He talks about the city of man is always getting worse and the city of God is always getting better. And I do think that's the tale of history. Yeah, yeah. Good point, Justin. Really good point. All right, yeah. Jeremy, we're recording it, Jeremy, so if you come on to the mic. You can just just sort of sit right by the mic, maybe, Jeremy. I was just going to ask for any of us who want to go further into the recapitulation idea, are there any, like, Pastors, scholars, writers that we would go. Oh yeah, I know um, that guy. I, yeah, I could, He's kind of easy to read. I could read his stuff. So anybody um, to read other than I, I, G.K. Well, first Beale? Of all, first of all, I, I would. Yeah, no, that that G.K. Beals is excellent. Um, I would say get it just a good study Bible. I think the ESV Study Bible is sympathetic to the idealist view, but it mentions the others, and so I think the ESV Study Bible is excellent. I'm not saying that others aren't. But Beale's commentary is, is helpful. Um, but I, 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 what I'd like to do, Jeremy, is at next week just kind of give you a list of resources. Um, I, I had a conversation with Ed Grant about this a couple weeks ago. There is, I think, a really helpful book on um, putting forth the amillennialist perspective by a really well-known and dear, faithful, reformed pastor named Sam Storms. He, his book is excellent. It's called, what is it, Ed, Kingdom Come? Kingdom Come? It's excellent. Um, he's a Calvinist. I love him, but he's like a really, uh, really pushes the envelope. He's like Pentecostal charismatic, and so I, some of the stuff he writes on that are just crazy. And so I can't recommend him there. Um, so read him with caution. Read him gladly on nonmillennialism and Calvinism, but not on not on spiritual gifts. Um, but I'll put together a list. There's another guy named Kim Riddlebarger who's written a case for amillennialism. It's a really helpful book. Um, Taylor, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse my voice. Yep. Um, I was going to partially answer Jeremy's question about um, resources on re- yeah. recapitulation based on what Taylor told me about two oh. years, year and a half ago. Yeah, well, come on, Taylor. Um, which, why, why are you hiding the, He didn't get up to do it, so I figured the other Taylor should do it. <laughs> yeah. um, but Dr. Kruger has a series yeah. of uh, lectures mm-hmm. on the Reformed Theological Seminary app where it's the Hebrews to Revelation course, so he covers that uh, uh, yeah. survey of the whole yep. New Testament, but his Revelation lectures are in there and they're yeah yes excellent. very good very excellent it yeah. does a, a fair and treatment. i think you could find that if you just 
school, Kruger, K-R-U-G-E-R, Reformed Theological Seminary. It'll pop up yeah. on the internet. And they have an app on, on oh, the app yeah. stores, okay. and you can, it's okay. pretty, easy, pretty easy to use. But, yeah, thank you. Um, and he does a fair treatment of all the, uh, yeah. everything that was covered here yeah. tonight, and then also the different millennial yeah. views. Yeah. Um, and he yeah. makes a case for all millennial. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Oh, good. So a question I had, um, as we're talking, yeah. I, I realize there's something that's in my, I heard this term one time, theological crockpot, that my yeah. whole life, you know, your whole yeah. life you put stuff in there that's cooking and you yeah. don't always know. Yeah. Sometimes you got to look back in there um, about the significance of, of numbers and, and numberology in the Bible yeah. and the, the patterns that there's definitely patterns and significance, yeah. but I don't know. I'd be curious on your thoughts about like, what do we do when we see the number seven, like the seven, yeah. obviously the ones, all, all the sevens here, the seven I am statements in John, yep. the seven elders, the seven spirits of God, the seven angels. And then you've got the other sets like um, 12. You've got the, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples. Yeah. I think there's a 12 in Revelation, but yeah. I wouldn't fight. Yeah. And then like 40. I've heard 40 is the number of testing. That's why there yeah. was 40 years in the desert, and, and Moses fasted for 40 mm-hmm. days, and Jesus fasted for 40 days. And mm-hmm. I'd be, so I've heard that, and it's sitting there, and I'm just yeah. curious about yeah. the way we should get into that. Um, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not strong on that. Taylor, um, and so I don't want to say too much because I've just, I would probably need to do a little bit more work on it. It's never been something I've delved deep into. I would say two things. Um, specifically about seven, I just think about this, think about it being God's perfection and God's completion. So I would say whatever, I think the different numbers, there's intentionality, and it is a sign clearly that God is wanting to show us something, and so we should see it but I don't think then it should send us in finding meaning behind every number in the Bible. I think that can get kind of into an unhealthy thing. But when you see these repetitions of numbers, um, I think that's saying something, and I think it should give us great comfort that God is in control of human history. Um, so, I, yeah, I'm kind of weak on that area. So I'm sorry to... Thank you. Yeah, good question, though. Anything else? Anything else? All right, I know it's late. We've got kids we've got to put to bed. Um, any final questions? Okay, um, I would really love to stick around and answer a lot of questions. We have an elders meeting tonight, so I'll hang around for a few minutes, but I don't want to have the brothers waiting on me um, for too long. But um, let's do this as our benediction. Um, let's just stand and sing the doxology together. I think that would be wonderful. And after we sing the doxology, I will pray. Um, I hope this has been helpful. And um, I pray that if I've said anything that's wrong or unhelpful, that it would fall to the ground. But anything that's true or encouraging, let it stick fast to our hearts. So let's sing the doxology.